I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit ExcelsiorGP.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Today with me, Parker Gaze. Parker is an old friend. He is a coach, serial entrepreneur, and teacher at the D School at Stanford. He has started several companies in the past and now spends his time helping entrepreneurs and leaders suffering from burnout and was one of my first ever tenants in a real estate deal that I did many years ago. So it's funny how the world works, but you and a really good friend of mine who is a fraternity brother were in a business for a long time and you all were one of our first tenants and that's how I first kind of got connected with you. That must have been 2011, 2012? Yeah, 2011 or 12 was when we yeah moved into the studio, split it with Matt Dudley. That's and right, Skillery. gosh. Yeah, that, that was when we, we split it in half and then maybe nine months later or something like that, we took over the entire space and Stoked is still there to this day. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So... Maybe let's start there. I've had Brent on the show, but it was a long time ago. Could you maybe explain a little bit more about kind of the D-School design thinking, what it is not? It's probably changed. You're kind of OG in that world at this point, I would think. (laughs) I am. (laughs) I just got called old. Yeah, man. So this idea of design thinking kind of gained a lot of popularity maybe about 15 years ago. And it kind of came from a couple of different places. One is there's a design consultancy called IDEO, which was doing a lot of interesting work at that time. And they were featured on 60 Minutes. And they like redesigned a shopping cart, I think it was for the grocery store. And so people started to hear about this methodology for you know innovation at, at that point. The other place that it came up from is, is as you said, the D School at Stanford University, which was partly founded by the CEO then, or the founder of IDEO, a guy named David Kelly. And so design thinking is, is kind of a designer's toolkit for solving problems. And so the really simple way to think about it is that you do a really good job of framing a problem 
We tend to use empathy as a, as a tool to really understand the people that we're solving for. It's a very human-centered approach. And then we spend some time ideating solutions and, and rapidly prototyping in kind of low-fidelity ways and then testing those ideas, those solutions with the, you know, the people that we uh, initially did that empathy work with. And so that's the basic gist of it. But the D-School has been in operation for a long time. It just graduated its first group of people with like design degrees, which was brand new. That's not something they had done for a long time. And it's a popular place on campus, man. For a long time, people, undergrads and grads, were taking classes that they got no credit for just because they really wanted to learn this, this way of thinking and this way of solving problems. So that's how we got their start. I went through an exec ed program in 2000. And 10, I think, and then met who would be the my co-founder at Stoked, Anna Love there. And she was also taking the exec ed class. We were invited to come back and teach, and we've both been teaching there ever since, like yeah, about 12 years now. And how did you initially get turned on to it? Really lucky. I was working, I was an IT director at a healthcare company at that time. And I went to my CEO, who was a, a longtime friend, a guy named Tim Petrickin here in town. And I went to Tim one night on a Sunday night, he and his family were having dinner and I just kind of showed up and I was like, I have to quit, dude. Like this job is soul sucking and I'm not really enjoying it and I got to go. And he said, I hear you. And he knew he was, you know, Tim was intuitive in this way. And he said, you know, I'm going to this thing, this executive education course. I think it's going to be more for someone like you than it is for someone like me, but why don't you come with me? And so that's how I went. The funny part is I'd never heard of design thinking. I'd certainly never heard of the D school. But as a guy that didn't go to college and was not familiar with kind of colleges in general, I'd never heard of Stanford. And so I was already teaching there when I went, Brent and I, our friend in common, were in San Francisco to do some healthcare work. And this was maybe, I don't know, six months after I'd started working at Stanford. And and he and I were cruising around campus and I was showing him the D school and Brent was mentioning that, you know, that was one of the very few schools that he didn't get into that he applied to. And I looked over at him and I said, oh, is this a hard school to get into? (laughs) (laughs) He looked at me like I was the dumbest person he'd ever met. And I had no idea where I was working. Like I really had no idea, which is probably good because the imposter syndrome I'm sure would have been much greater had I known the kind of place I was hanging out in. So... Yeah, it was probably, I mean, probably for the best. But that's right. Yeah. That's that's funny. Gosh. I know. I know. So, yeah. and I forgot the Tim Petrigan connection. Yeah. We won't go down that rabbit hole, but I saw him <laughs> recently, actually. I didn't even, I barely even recognized him. He's lost so much weight. From I heard his, he spit. Yeah, from his surgery. And anyways, we work out at the same gym, or at least used to. Good guy. I want to maybe use the quitting your job conversation and then becoming an entrepreneur to help inform this larger kind of discussion I want to have with you, because now you help mentor and coach entrepreneurs and and business leaders. What was it exactly that brought you to the point where you had to go to Tim and say, I'm out, I can't do this any longer? Was it a gradual thing that became kind of precipitous or was it, was there an event that took place that was the catalyst for that conversation? What that looked like for you? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. It's funny. It's, it's been on my mind all morning. I was out riding the bike this morning and I'd had a long conversation with my niece last night, who's 23 years old and she is in her first kind of big job out of college. And so she called me yesterday and she's like, I am so miserable. I hate it. I sit in a cube all day. I'm cold calling people. She's uh 
acting as a recruiter and she's just mm. like, it does not feel in alignment with who I am and what I want to be doing. And I had such a great conversation with her last night. But to get back to your specific question, it was something that built over time. I, like a lot of things in my life, just kind of stumbled into the IT field. Prior to working on computers for a living, I worked on cars, like for fun. Like that was just a thing I did in my teens. And and so ripping apart computers came very naturally and easily to me. And, and it felt like the same thing. And this was in the very early days of computers you know, kind of mid to late nineties. And so I stumbled into it. I got good at it. And I don't know that I ever really cared about it. I, I think that I had an ability to articulate complicated IT matters to senior leadership. Like that was, I think the reason they kept me around for a long time. And so I moved up in that world because I was able to do that. And, and then I got hooked on a paycheck. And so here you are, I'm a guy without a college degree. I had no other marketable skill set that I was interested in using. I could go back to turn and wrench on cars, or I could go be an electrician, which are the things I had done previously, and or I could continue to do this IT work. And so I stuck around doing the IT work as long as I could. Eventually money stopped you know, being enough. I was basically working for nights and weekends, and all I wanted to do was get out and run and ride my mountain bike and be in the woods. And so Eventually, I just got to where I couldn't take it anymore. I had no plan. I didn't know what I was going to do next when I went to Tim, and but I knew that I couldn't do that anymore. And so, all that to say, built up to where I reached that you know that point of desperation, right? Like like the way that we make any change in life, right? We have to hit a bottom, and and that was my bottom. I was completely burnt out. And the funny thing is that has shown up several times in my life. You know, you know, the two or three times that I have quit good jobs have turned out to be the most remarkable things in my life, right? Like there are things that I didn't want to do. I didn't want to leave these jobs. But when I finally got to the point that I did, I I could kind of, upon reflection, clearly see that I was living out of alignment with, you know, what I really wanted to be doing and what I'm called to do, you know, what I'm, what I have a knack for and what I'm excited about. And so you left what I would define as kind of big corporate gig world into starting stoked. Right. You committed to be an entrepreneur. And was that like the next day or had you had this idea in your head? There was a little bit of a transition. So we I go to quit. Tim says, don't quit yet. Let's go to the D school. We go to a week long exec ed course. I come back. I tell him I want to quit anyway. Now he's excited about it. He's like, cool, you can quit that job. And I want you to start leading innovation work here at we were then at a company called E plus Cancer Care. And he's like, I want you to start doing innovation work and, you know, trying to create a better experience for our cancer patients, which is something that was very near and dear to my heart at that time. My very best friend in the world had just been diagnosed with cancer and he ended up passing a few months later. So I got to be on the other side of that for a while as a friend and family member. So I was in the hospital, I was in the chemo rooms, I was in the surgery waiting rooms, and I started to see how it was a pretty shitty experience, right? And so I was driven at that point to, to start doing work inside of, of E+, and how could we improve the, the treatment experience for cancer patients? And that was when Brent and I actually started working together a lot. He was obviously an analyst at that point, but I started pulling him in. I could see something in him. I was like, man, this kid's got something. And so I started pulling him into a lot of the design work that I was doing at the time, and, and he was very naturally good at it, which is why he was, you know, the first hire at Stoke. He was an easy one to grab and bring along. I don't want to fast forward through Stoke, but right. essentially you were incorporating your learnings from with the D school and working with some of these larger institutions, kind of yeah. marrying these two, you know, your 
experience working with big corporate healthcare life, an entrepreneur, and then using D school. What I'm more curious about is eventually it went full circle and you ended up leaving stoked your yourself, something that you had started. Correct. So how did that come about? Man, this was I think this was it two and a half or three and a half years ago. It was definitely it was pre-COVID. It was, yeah. It was or it was in the midst of COVID. Gosh, I should be better about this. But yeah, in kind of in the midst of it, a couple of things happened. One, I was hitting burnout. Like I was hitting it at a critical mass. Anna and I had been working together for about a decade at that time. So a couple of years before we officially started Stoked, she and I were out, you know, teaching and leading design work all over the world and which was so fun and super exciting. But after about a decade of traveling 50 to 75% of the time, I was just getting really tired and I couldn't seem to find a role that I, I wanted to do anymore. So I knew that I didn't want to teach full time. I don't really love, there's a lot of like aspects of like running a business that I'm not in love with, like, especially like accounting, like I can't stand accounting, right? And I'm just not naturally inclined in some of those areas. And so, yeah, the other thing that happened was my wife got diagnosed with some pretty serious health issues. Initially, my response to that was to like dive in really hard and work, you know, even more and like, oh, I'm just going to like, you know, probably try to ignore it was probably what I was trying to do. And then that lasted for about nine months. And then you could probably see the writing on the wall. I was, we were co-CEOs for a long time and I were. And at a certain point I asked Anna if she would be interested in being the sole CEO. And I wanted to move into more like a chief creative officer position. And I was much more interested in the creative direction of Stoked. And so she said yes to that. And she was killing it and doing a really good job at that. And that was, I think that's her calling. And about six months after that, maybe nine months, I was like, I just can't be here. I literally got uh, mono at like, I was like, I don't know, 45 years old, 46 years old. And I got mono, which is kind of unheard of. And the reason I knew it was during COVID was because I kept going to the doctor getting COVID tests and they kept saying, no, you don't have COVID. And then I tested positive for mono, which is so wild. And so what I started to realize is like, you know, I had to like shut it down. I came home for like a month and like laid in bed for a long time, which is not something that I do. And, and that was when I started to realize, I was like, dude, your body is trying to tell you something. And, and that was the big severe burnout. I think that was, I left in October. Anna and I like reconvened somewhere around Christmas time. And I said, I called her and she's like, you're not coming back, are you? And I was like, no, I don't think I can. And luckily we are friends before we're anything else. And so she was incredibly supportive. She knew what was going on with my wife and she didn't bat an eye. So I transitioned out of there and have been kind of running solo for the past three years. Yeah. I mean, you probably don't remember this, but I recall seeing you at Stoked at some point kind of before this all went down and you looked like hell. And I say (laughs) that as a friend Yeah. and you just, it was clear that you were kind of at the end of that journey. And and I want to kind of dovetail this with conversation we have with a lot of entrepreneurs on the show and I've had my own experiences of it does seem like there is a 7 to 10 year cycle where you can push through but then at some point your mind or your body just like breaks down. It can't you've got the motivation and the will but something just kind of falls apart. I had a depressive episode and some challenges with alcohol at a certain point and needed to take a break. 
Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned something where there comes a time where the money is not enough to keep you there. So now that you're on the flip side of that journey and you're working with entrepreneurs, how do you help people either know about that and be preventive of it and or deal with it if you come to the middle of that crisis point? That's a great question. And it's the, the thing that I'm kind of in love with right now, which is that people call me with the excuse of like, hey, I'm looking for kind of practical, tactical advice, startup stuff. And then probably within the first 15 minutes of our first call, we get to the more emotional stuff. Like, hey, what's really going on, you know? So I kind of say that like, yeah, I totally provide tactical support for, for entrepreneurs, but more importantly, I provide the emotional support. And more specifically, the things that we focus on are exactly what you're talking about, like creating a mindfulness practice that allows you to be aware. And as a guy that I've had five, five startups, four, four or five startups since I was a kid, and you're just running fast, man. Like you were hairs on fire and you were just like flying, trying to get a million things done. It's a very exciting time in life, right? What we're not paying attention to are the data points that we're receiving from our body, right? Like there's two data points that we kind of pay attention to. One is fatigue and the other one is hunger. And those are the only ones that we really register. But what we don't notice is like, is this sitting right in my stomach or is my throat clenching up right now? Is my chest tight? Like our body gives us data points all day long and we just don't recognize them. You know, we're not taught to, to pay attention to that stuff. And so developing a mindfulness practice, and I'm also big into a journaling practice. I provide a lot of journaling prompts for my clients to really dig in, to become self-aware, to pause and reflect. And I think it's so important to, to do that stuff. And I can frame it like in a way that like, oh, this will make you a better entrepreneur and a better worker. And, and I think it does, but like, it also just like makes your life better, which is probably way more important than work, man. I mean, you know, to be real frank with you, right? Well, that's the more interesting conversation in my mind is this carrot and stick where I think if you're 40 and under, you need the, like the carrot of, hey, if you do these things, you can make more money and you can build a bigger company and you can be invited to these other events and conferences. And I feel like if you're over 40, it's the stick of, like, hey, man, if you don't get your shit together, this is not going to end well for you. That's like, right. you might have some money in the bank, but right. you'll have no friends. You won't really have a great family life, and yeah. your body and your mind will be broken. 100%, dude. I've, yeah. And I've seen it without fail. Like, I keep thinking there's this magic person out there who has the amount of money that I want and does the amount of work that, but they, they don't, man. They work all the time, they work seven days a week, they have failed relationships. They're not close to their siblings or their parents, and they can justify all of that stuff. But from afar, from an objective point of view, we can see like, oh man, like that's kind of a bummer, you know? And so this was another point I, I spoke to my niece last night. It's so fun speaking to young people, right? Because gosh, 20, 20, 25 years, right? Like a lot you can pick up in that time. But, you know, to tell her, you know, I was like, look, I know that you just got out of college and all your friends are trying to get the best jobs and all those girls are walking around with Gucci purses and all that shit. I was like, that's not you. You want to be in the woods. You want to be with your dog playing in the creek. Like, don't feel like you got to do what they're doing. And there's so much pressure for us to win and succeed and, and do what our fellows are doing and, and crush it. You know, fucking Gary Vaynerchuk, man, puts that book out called Crush It. And then you have a generation of people who can't stop working, you know? Yeah. It's very challenging to be exposed to that world and then be able to pull yourself out once you get into it. Because mm -hmm. I think that hedonic treadmill 
and those golden handcuffs, whatever cliche you want to throw at That's it, right. is very real. And once you start, and I think people like you and the work that you do is super helpful because wherever you are in that entrepreneurial journey, having like a true independent third party to come in and give you a reality check is super important because there's probably nobody else in your life who will do it because everyone else is, let's be honest, like they're making money off of you. That's they have different levers that they want to pull with you. And that includes your family in a lot mm -hmm. of times. Yeah. And so it's important for somebody to just kind of say, hey, like I'll be the Dutch uncle and I'll say, you know, you might be able to do this for two, three years, but at some point you're going to blow up. And then like, what is this all for at the end of the day? Man, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I think that it's interesting, like, awareness people to getting their lives back, I think is like the, a really simple way to say it, but also a lot more awareness around health and wellness and mental health is bubbling up more and more, but it seems to be like industry specific, right? And I mean, I think it's one of the things that I applaud you for was you started talking about it in an industry where traditionally it's not talked about, right? I mean, like when we look at the world of finance or real estate, like these are not places where people are talking about their feelings, right? Because there is this I think my hypothesis is that like, if we talk about our feelings, they're not going to trust that we understand the facts. And man, that's just not true. I mean, that's just, that's some old story that doesn't make any sense. And it's just not true. And so I love what you're doing. I love that you're, you know, you were one of the first people that I remember in this space coming out and saying like, Hey man, I've had challenges. Here's what I'm doing to start to address it. It's not perfect. I'm not done yet. I've got a long road. Like it's, you know, it's kind of a forever game. And I think that gives so many people, especially men who are scared to admit this shit in the first place, I think it gives them the permission they need to start taking a look at some of this shit and start taking care of themselves and integrating some practices into their life, whether it be movement of some kind, whether it be being cognizant of the stuff we're putting in our body, whether it be looking at things like, you know, therapy or, you know, doing some kind of internal work, man, because I've not met anybody that gets through this life in a healthy, happy way without doing the work. We've put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. Yeah, it's interesting, kind of two anecdotes that align with what you were saying. I work with younger people, kind of folks in their 25 to 30 range, and it's terrific. It's very refreshing. I think this whole narrative of young people are lazy and don't know what they're doing is completely stupid. Yeah, that's trash. And not accurate. And so I was asking somebody who I work with, she's 27-ish, what are your friends talking about? Like, what's keeping them up at night? What's topical for them? And she was like, you know, what people really want to focus on and learn from older people is how can I become wealthy without killing myself? And I was like, that's a great question yeah, yeah. because we have to your point we have models of like hey if you want to go into investment banking or be a hedge fund manager you'll probably make some bank but you'll probably be like thrice divorced you know alcoholic <laughs> drug addict psycho psychopath yeah and you know i don't know if that's a good trade honestly yeah these and people i think are starting to understand it especially now that we're understanding knock on wood I mean, gosh, we might live to be like 85, 95 years old. Mm -hmm. This is a long journey. And I wish I would known that 10, 15 years ago. I thought, to your point, like everything was a sprint. Right. And it's just really not. 
No, man, I love this, this idea of trade. What are you willing to trade for it? And so again, man, what a bunch of gems I got out of my conversation with my niece last night. But again, you know, she's like, yeah, I, you know, here's how much money I want to make. And I'm like, okay, cool. You're 23 years old. Do you want to make 150 K? What are you going to do with all that money? And she's like, I don't really know. Shit. So it's, I love, like, I appreciate the honesty. She's like, I had no idea what I'm, you know, she didn't say I'm definitely buying a boat or I'm definitely getting a big house or, you know, a weekend house. Like she had no idea. She just knew that she wanted to earn more money. Like that was the only thing. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I would say, like, think about the goals that are important to you. Like, how do you want to live your life first and then reverse engineer your way into how much money does that take? And it's a, it's a much more fun way, I think, to think about it, right? Versus just like, because if you just say, I want to make a lot of money, that line keeps getting moved. If you make a hundred, you're going to be like, I need to make 120. And you make 120 and you're like, I need to make two. And you just keep you know, moving the line forward without any real intention or awareness about what you're doing, right? And in the meantime, that's like you said, we're sacrificing everything else. Drinking picks up quickly, you know. We come home, but we're not really present with our kids or with our, you know, significant others. And, and yeah, then we're just, we wake up one day and it's all been blown up. And then we look back and we're like, man, my bank account's flush. But like, who gives a shit? Yeah. I mean, there's a saying within YPO, which is like, somebody's always got a bigger plane. And you can, I think the way that I've started framing it when I meet people who are entrepreneurs or in financial services or startups, trying to understand what game they're playing. And if the game is like, I want to have the ski house and the beach house and the plane, then I can kind of understand their mindset, and their motivation and, and what will drive them and how to have that conversation. I frankly think that's kind of a silly game. My wife has a saying, she uses at school, she works at a high school here in Nashville, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Oh, that's good. Which is I think really good. <laughs> That's so good. Because like you'll get prizes and you'll get that PJ or the second house, but like, is that the game you want to be playing long run? I don't know. Yeah, man, that's so right. And and there is a, I mean, to to her point, to your point, there is a feedback loop, right, which makes you think you're winning the game. Like, oh, I'm getting this stuff. I'm getting this stuff. Like, that's great. But for you know, most of us that have earned a little bit of money or accumulated a little bit of that stuff, it's like I mean, Jim Carrey's been on this kick for a long time. Like, he's like, I wish. I could give you a day in this life so you could see that it's not what you think it is. It is not going to solve the problem that you have. He's really clear about that, which I think is really cool. I'll also, I bring this, con- this story up a lot. I think about Seinfeld, man. He, right after, there's a documentary called, I think it's called The Comedian. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's right after they finish the show. It's the last season of Seinfeld. And he goes right back into the comedy clubs. And it shows him night after night, he's got like a yellow pad and he's writing jokes and he's really gone back to his craft, right? Of like crafting jokes. And then he's getting up on stage and trying out new material over and over again. He is willing to risk this reputation he has. Granted, he's got millions of dollars in the banks. He's driving a nice Porsche to the comedy club every night, but he's still there doing the hard work. And it's really clear, right? Like he doesn't give a shit about the money. Like that's a great byproduct. And I'm sure he's his collection of vintage Porsches is nice, but he cares about the craft. He's there to do the work. That's the thing that drives him. And it's clear to see because nobody else would work that hard. I think if you know if you had that much money in the bank and you had all the accolades, he's up there risking his name, right? His reputation as a funny person 
by trying on new material. And it's cool because what you get to see is him try larger and larger audiences until he finally does like a, a big kind of more of an arena show, right? And anyway, I just think like, man, his priorities are really straight. Like he's really clear about, you know, about what he's doing the work for. And I think that's really brilliant. Creative people tend to, to, to get that right sometimes. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm a huge admirer. He got offered $13 million an episode to do another season of Seinfeld. He turned it down. Yeah, $13 million an episode. How many episodes are in a season? It was like a ton. Yeah, and this is back in the day. So $13 right. million today is, I don't know, the equivalent of like 25 probably. Right. So <laughs> with inflation. It's, yeah, it's um, insane, yeah. So I like this quote from my boy, Anthony Scarmucci, the mooch. He said, money will solve money problems, but it won't solve the human condition. Mm-hmm. So how do you work with entrepreneurs who have been successful? And I know, you know, I have not hit a big lick, but I mean, I'm living comfortably. And I know folks who've done really well. This concept of existential dread and entrepreneurs that do really well, that become super depressed or have mm-hmm. suicidal ideation. Like, how do you work through that component when they've qualified their success from an external standpoint, but they're still not satisfied internally. Yeah. Success is interesting. I'm in recovery. I've been sober 21 years now. And and one of the things that makes it hard for a lot of people to, to get into recovery is being successful at work. And so they're like, well, I make a million bucks a year or I make 5 million bucks a year. How, I can't possibly be an alcoholic. And I'm like, oh, yeah, the fuck you can. You know, <laughs> It's actually more likely, but it, it feels like something that they can lean on that means that they don't have a problem. So the tools that I use primarily, and you know, if we're in a suicidal ideation, I'm pushing people to, to work with an actual therapist, right? Like that's to be clear. But for the most part, it's doing a lot of reflection. Like, hey, and this is where, again, mindfulness practice, learning, teaching people how to watch their thoughts, which is not something that most of us do. Most people are unaware of their thoughts. They're hijacked. They live in their mind all day long. And they don't really, they're not aware of their thought life. They're not cognizant of it. And so with a little bit of meditation, right, people start to be like, oh man, I spent most of my day arguing with someone who wasn't there. You're like, yeah, all right, cool. And then with the journaling prompts, you can get them to do more reflection, which is another practice that most people don't have in their daily lives, where we sit down and we write about like, what went on yesterday? How did I behave? How did I show up with my wife? Was I present around my kids? You know? So asking yourself some questions about, are you living the way that you want to live? And if the way that you want to live is drinking all day and cheating on your wife and working, you know, 18 hours a day, man, I, I got no judgment against that. Like, I just want to, I want to be really clear that you are living the life that you intend to live. And almost all people are not, right? And so upon reflection, most people are like, man, I did this thing. That's not my value. You know, that is not a, a part of my core values, my, my set of values, the things that I want to live by. And so we start to define those things. We, you know, we say, great, let's take a look at kind of the major buckets in your life, whether it be family, business, spirituality, friends, hobbies, you know, all of those things. And where do you want to prioritize those? You know, like what's your number one priority? And once they establish that, they'll say, oh, my family's my number one priority. Church is second. You know, kids are sitting there you know, work is like fourth or fifth. And I'm like, cool, let's pull your calendar out. Yeah, no, that's, and that's the test, right? right. That's the audit. Yeah. Because your values are reflected in your time and your resources. Correct. And your budget. Mm-hmm. And if your budget is 
going towards work like 90%, then what you yeah. just said is, is totally BS. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And they just don't see it until they see it. And it's got to be visual too, right? It's, this is not a thinking exercise or even it's not a great talking exercise, but I whiteboard this stuff. And so we'll list all of the buckets, right? So family, spirituality, career, you know, hobbies, whatever. We'll list them on one side and they'll list the priorities. And then we list them again on the other side and then we list where they actually show up. And they can visually see the discrepancy between the two. And they're like, shit, man, I'm not living in the way that I, I would like to be living. There's work to be done. And these are really high performing people, right? Like these are people that are on it all day, every day. They're very smart, but they just can't see that they're living out of alignment. And that's, man, that's there again, zero judgment against that. But it's a great opportunity to, to tune some things up. Yeah. And I think the greater challenge is working with a lot of high net worth individuals and families that have had big liquidity events, big success, right. multipliers of capital, the skill sets and the characteristics that allow you to achieve those things are usually often diametrically opposed right. <laughs> to being yeah. healthy, you know, mentally well, a good husband, a good dad. It just is what it is. It's yeah. very hard to do both. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, I agree with you. Like, I'm totally with you. They are opposed, it seems like. I'm curious as to why that is. I mean, I could put my tinfoil hat on and come up with a couple of ideas, but <laughs> I think it's the nature of the industrial financial complex that we've created of, it, at the end of the day, you can say with technology and, and leverage, but oftentimes it is a function of your, the component of your time that you put into something and the output will be dollars. Yeah. Mm. And it's just, there's only so many hours in the day, right? Right. It's very Invest transactional. Yeah. Investment banking, super high profile attorneys, mm -hmm. tech bros. It just takes time. It just takes yeah. so much time, even yeah. if you're really good at it. And as you know, like building relationships, I think also takes time. And you also need to be a human. And there's just not enough time of the day to do all of them, I think. I think you could do two out of three really well. I just don't think you can do three out of three. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I also, as you're talking, there's also something about this, this idea of, at least in the West, at least in America, right? Our idea of productivity has become a bit of an illness, right? And so sitting silently does not feel productive. Letting our minds wander does not feel productive, you know, right? It's like, this is where all, I mean, everybody jokes, right? I, get, I come up with all my great ideas when I'm in the shower, like when I'm not doing anything else. And that's because we're actively not being productive and our mind is working in a different way. It's being creative in a different way, maybe for the first time in a long time. And so I think that there's also something about, you know, this need to constantly be doing and being productive. And yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement there. A lot of room to like let go. I mean, there's so much great like science and research, especially from kind of the, the neuroscience field these days where they're saying that like, it's really good for us to like go out into the backyard, be in nature and let your mind wander, like put your damn phone down. And that's just not a thing that most of uh, the people that you just mentioned, you know, high level attorneys and tech bros and like they don't give their brains that time to rest, to take account, right? To do the audit, to sit in and be like, checking on my body. How am I doing? Oh, wow. All right. My throat's super tight. My temples like are like in pain, you know, or, you know, whatever else you got yeah. going on. And I think it's also... It's similar to drinking when everybody that you in your community and your professional cohort, mm -hmm. when that becomes normalized and socialized, for sure, it's very hard to extract from it. Yeah. 
Because yeah. to be the black sheep is to be, is very hard. That's a yeah, that's a really good point. I mentioned this last night to to some folks. I was saying that like I had a hard time recognizing that I had a problem because I had surrounded myself with lots of people who had a problem, right? Like I sought those people out, you know. So people that drank in a healthy way, I was not interested in being around. That's not who I wanted to drink with. Yeah. I wanted to drink with the people that took it way too far. And, and I think uh, that's workaholism is the same thing, right? Totally. Like if you're rolling around town with a bunch mm-hmm. of people that are putting in 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 hours a week and traveling all the time, right? then you're just going with the crowd. Like these are what successful people look like. Totally. And it's there was a TV show on about consultants a while back. House of Cards, maybe? No, that was the... Anyway, House of Lies or something like that. Anyway... There was a joke in there one time and it was these consultants and they're uh, on the airplane all the time. Like that's where a lot of the the scenes were shot. And there was one point where they were like all like nerding out about how many points they had, you know, like for hotels or airlines or what status they were. And as they were joking about it, I was like, oh shit, that's me. Like I talk about these things. These are the things I like, you know, and this is like now the ass of a joke on a TV show. And that's me. But it, it seemed normal because those were that's what we all did. <laughs> I remember a period of before I had my challenging period, I was traveling a lot. I had diamond medallion status on Delta once. I was going to Columbus, Ohio. I was in first class sitting next to this older guy, sales mm-hmm. guy. And, you know, they like announced it on the plane when you hit it. So I hit it. It was like December, right? End of the year. It's great. And they bring you over like a drink probably, if I remember right. correctly. And the guy next to me goes... Man, congratulations. That's a big deal. I said, yeah, it's, it's been a long year. And he goes, you know, when you get that, they you get credit amount of money for your divorce proceedings. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Wonderful. Like, yeah, thank right? you so much, you know, because <laughs> that dude had seen a thing or two. Well, this has been great, man. This has been a lot of fun. We'll have to do another episode. We didn't get into like half the stuff I wanted to, but we're oh, bumping up against time. Yeah, um, we are. Yeah. So if folks are interested, could you maybe flesh out a little bit more about kind of like who you work with, the work you do, if like a, a typical fact pattern of somebody who should reach out or is in a place where you can provide value to them? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I kind of primarily say that I work with entrepreneurs and leaders and the entrepreneurs come in a couple flavors. One is people that are trying to build something big that they want to scale. They're almost always seeking funding. They're in that kind of world. So they're busy building teams, creating strategy. I, because of the design thinking and innovation world that I come from, I love kind of the product service, design test, iterate kind of stuff. And so I, I tend to, to help a lot in that way. But also people that are starting to realize that there is uh, more to life than you know spreadsheets and uh, airline points. I think that those are a lot of the people that are calling me, people that want to experience more of a sense of presence in their lives, you know, the going full tilt on the job is just not paying out in the way that they thought it would. And so I work with those a lot. And then a lot of people that just tend to be leaders. And so they can just be leaders at large organizations. There's a lot of dissatisfaction in that world. And I think COVID highlighted a lot of that for people. So those are a lot of the folks that that tend to reach out. And I guess the last piece is that I end up doing a lot of work in the business as well. So There's working with the individual, which is uh, my favorite part, but just because of my experience as as an entrepreneur and a leader and, you know, that whole world, I tend to advise in the business a lot as well. Well, definitely encourage people to reach out. I've known Parker for 
long time. He's a terrific person. We will have him on again to do a part two of this because we have a lot more to uncover, but definitely encourage you to connect with him. He's got great content on their website as well as the social media handles. One question we ask people who come on the show as we end, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I do. This is going to be so nerdy and you're probably going to wish you'd asked a shorter question. I meditate twice a day on average. Not, I'm not perfect about it, but I usually sit for about 30 minutes in the morning and then I do a, an evening sit for about 20 minutes right before I go to bed. And that's a long, those are long sessions. Those are long sits. I've been sitting for a long time. I go on retreat and I do all that kind of stuff. It's a big part of my life. Brought a lot of peace, a lot of satisfaction. I also, movement is a big piece. So like you, I'm either running trails or on the bike or at the gym. I love climbing. So I do that every day. I walk my dog every day. Me and Josie are cruising around Sylvan Park every morning before it starts boiling outside. And, and then I do a lot of like kind of, you know, reading and writing, journaling in the morning. So I sit out on my back deck with my coffee and, and get kind of dialed in before I start going out there. And, you know, you got to, you can't transmit what you don't have, I think is the best way to say that. So I got to keep my practice up in, in order to be of service to others. Yeah, that's awesome, man. We'll keep it up. Yeah, um, thanks, dude. Listeners, please do leave us a review. Let us know your favorite part of the conversation. And uh, Parker, I had my cold plunge this morning. You have yours coming up this afternoon. That's Good right. luck. Thanks, buddy. I had my, it was my first one. You're an old hand at this, but I hope you enjoy it. Hope you bring some clarity. Yeah, man. And we'll stay in touch, man. We'll have you back on soon. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.